0: She's a lady none of you know. She's a 64-year-old homeowner in Silsby, Texas. Uh, It's about 100 miles north of Houston. And she had an experience at the end of July that I don't think any of us would envy. She was, um, in one of the most improbable occurrences, she was out mowing her yard, um, six-acre property, clear blue sky, and out of nowhere, a snake falls on her. Wraps around her right arm, and all she can do, as you can imagine, is start flailing and trying to get the snake off, and she's concurrently crying and and screaming something I think we can all sympathize with. Jesus, help me! Please, Jesus, help me! I don't know, Peggy, and the story didn't tell me much beyond that, So this may have just been that, uh, you know, southern cultural reaction that everyone would do down in the south, or Peggy may have actually truly believed that Jesus was her only hope. Either way, the reaction, I think, was fairly warranted. Yet the issue wasn't resolved yet, and it actually got worse. I know some of you are thinking, how? But within moments, before she can probably finish screaming, Jesus, help me, a hawk swoops in. This is the reason the snake fell out of the sky. A hawk swoops in, starts grabbing at her arm. She is punctured and bleeding and bruised because a hawk wants its prey that somehow wriggled out of its talons in midair. And all of this took about 15 to 20 seconds, and eventually the hawk was successful, but Peggy was not so lucky. When Peggy's husband came, And got to her, she was, as you can imagine, fairly hysterical at that point in time. And it took him until they were on the way to the hospital to start figuring out what in the world had just happened. Now it's a few weeks later, and Peggy's physically healing, but not surprisingly, she still has nightmares about snakes and hawks. And to compound this, though, two years earlier, she was actually bitten by another venomous snake on a different property in the same area. Now, if I were Peggy... I would either hire somebody to do all my yard work, I would carry an umbrella everywhere I went, or I would simply do the smart thing and move out of Texas. (laughs) Now, that story points to something, though, and I want us to think about it. What do we do? How do we react when we are faced with trouble? I'm guessing it it won't be a snake wrapped around our arm that fell out of the clear blue sky the hawk digging in its talons, but it could well be snake-like person who is going after you and some insolent, worthless, evil creature making life utterly horrendous for you. Or it could truly be any other troubling experience in life. Maybe your response would be, well, I'm just going to ignore it. If I ignore it, it'll go away. Or you, you try to fix it, or you despair and you give up. Perhaps you, you know, you do what everyone does. You Google it, and you try and figure out how to resolve the problem. Or you ask for advice from others. And maybe you pray. Now, hopefully, you do pray. But here's another question. How and why do you actually pray in that situation? How and and why do you actually pray in that situation? Is it merely a reaction? It's it's just cultural? It's what you've been brought up with maybe? Or is it you're complaining to God about the situation? God, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? Are you simply doing it because that's what you think you are supposed to do? Or is it prayer that you are compelled to do? That you are compelled towards it? Nothing will actually hold you back because you know the one to whom you pray. In our text this morning, David is in a bad situation. We don't know what it is specifically. That's one of the beauties of the Psalms, as I've said many times. We don't don't know the specific situation, but he's in a bad one. Insolent, wicked, ruthless men are seeking his life. But David knows the Lord, and he, he knows who he is in relation to God. David knows he is a servant, and that the Lord is sovereign. And I think those two facts in particular greatly influenced how and why David prayed, how he responded to situations in which he found himself. And my desire then f- this morning is for us to see this and to see it hopefully um, influence and change how we respond, how we come to God. So if you, uh, if you would, um, turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 86. If you're using one of the Bibles in the row, it's on page 94 or 494, that is, page 494, and the Bible's in the row. But please turn with me to Psalm 86 and turn your attention to the reading of God's Word. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. For I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of a favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, Lord... Have helped me and comforted me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see, that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, that you would you would do this, that you would unite our hearts to fear your great and glorious name this morning. Lord, would you work this in us for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. Now again, we don't know the specifics of the situation with David. But knowing David's history, he's not only does he have these insolent men coming against him, but he's likely on the run. He probably has no home at the moment, no real place of refuge, no means of support, although he likely had some followers and companions But the reality is, is he's in a pretty seriously bad situation at this point. And what we have recorded here is at least some of his response to this situation. And it's extremely instructional for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this, I want you to notice in particular the language that he uses. So much of what he writes here is in the imperative mood. Okay, there's there a sense in which he is boldly commanding the Lord. Not that he, he sees himself in any way as, as over the Lord or or has the ability to direct what the Lord would do. He, he, and, and even if he if he thought of himself as over the Lord, he wouldn't be asking him for help. You don't generally ask someone for help who doesn't have the ability to help you. But he's bold. He's bold. Just listen to the language. Verse 1, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Verse 2, preserve my life. Save your servant. Verse 3, be gracious. Verse 6, give ear. Listen. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save. Actually, five times in the first four verses, he uses the imperative mood, and nine more times throughout the rest of the psalm. One commentator said, this is partly out of desperation, as a drowning man calls out, help! Not, would someone be kind enough to assist me in my dilemma? And partly because of his close personal relationship with God, which dispenses with the need for polite language. Like, none of us could have imagined Peggy Jones going, oh, look, a snake, someone please help me. I mean, you're desperate, you're crying out for help. And you see with these imperatives The amazing thing is they aren't arrogant, and they aren't demanding in some kind of bratty sense. They're actually humble. I know that sounds somewhat counterintuitive to say him giving, speaking an imperative to the Lord is actually humble but they are because of who David is and who he is praying to and the relationship that is involved there. When we call on God to save, when we call on him to work in our lives as David did, we do so in the context of a relationship. In the context of a relationship. And what is that relationship then? Well, David describes himself in a specific way in these verses, doesn't he? Three times he calls himself a servant. A servant. Verses 2, 4, and 16. And also, the son of your maidservant. Son of a maidservant. And actually, I think I just jumped down past... That's my first time back in 13 weeks. I jumped on. Okay? I actually want to look at, at how he describes himself before I get to the servant aspect, which I'll get to in a minute. But he describes himself as poor and needy, godly... Save your servant who trusts in you, you're my God, okay? He's, he says he's in need, but he's also that servant, as I was talking about. He's a godly servant. And actually, that word used for godly there, it is the same root as the, the Hebrew for steadfast love, the Lord's steadfast love. He's saying he is a devoted servant, a devoted, steadfast servant of God, of the true God, of the God who has made a covenant with him. He trusts in the Lord. And so another thing, if you notice this, David calls God Lord multiple times in this. But some of those are in all caps. If you look at your text, some of them are in all caps and others aren't. A lot of times when you read through the Old Testament in a, in a flow like this in a psalm, they're either all all caps or they're not at all. But the all caps are, are, um, signify the, the word Yahweh. God is the the covenant-keeping God. But the ones that aren't speak of him as Lord, as as master, as the one you're in relationship to in in that sense. And in the ancient world, the Lord was responsible for the protection and care of his servants. That was their duty. And so the servant was actually right to call upon the Lord to protect and provide in times of trouble. If the, the servant was in trouble, out it was the Lord's duty to care for them, to protect them. And so the servant was right to call. It would actually, in, in many ways, it would actually be wrong not to call upon that Lord. It would be a dismissing of the character and role of the Lord, not to, in some sense, expect him to help. Not out of presumption but out of an expectation that I'm in this relationship with you, you have an obligation. There's, there's almost a, a covenant aspect in that, even, that says, You will protect me, you will provide for me. Now we get to the David knowing he's a servant, the three times it says it, and that it calls him the son of the maidservant, that, that, that speaks of him being in this familial relationship. David's part of the Lord's house, his family, and this aspect of him understanding, I'm a servant, I've been brought up in the Lord's house. It gives him boldness in coming to the Lord. I remember growing up, we had a neighbor boy, literally right next to us, named Aaron. Um, He was a pretty interesting kid. And one of my vivid memories of him was him just randomly coming to our door Ringing the doorbell, we'd come to the door and he'd go, can I have some raisins? Literally, that was the only thing he'd say at our door is, can I have some raisins? Okay, it tells you a little bit something about him. And it, it, it's an odd thing to say the least. You wanted to say, dude, go home and ask your parents. Go home and ask them, ask your dad. Now, we probably did give him raisins at that point in time, even though we, he, had, he had no real hope to ask us but he was bold in that ask. He he had no hope, there was no real relationship in it, but he was bold. Yet, where that boldness should have been directed was at home asking his mom or dad, can I have some raisins there? Because there's actually a familial obligation to that. There's a relationship that brings the expectation of help, not with your random neighbor. See, David had that familial expectation. And so he asked, And he asked with urgency, he says, save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. The aside at the end, that you are my God, it's it's a clear indication that he understands this relationship. It's personal. So he calls out. He lifts up his soul. He is praying because he knows that's what he needs to do. And I love David's request in in verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servant. You can only imagine with everything that's going on how things could detract from a glad soul. There's boldness in this. But it shows, I think, even more so explicitly where our souls find their joy where they are gladdened, they're actually gladdened in the Lord. He's the only one that deals with what is lasting and permanent rather than what is temporal and fleeting. He deals with the eternal things, the things that will go on and on. He deals with our souls. And so for us to find joy, our, our job is to find our joy there, joy that is deep and durable in the Lord. It has to be from the Lord, and, and, and one of the things that goes with that is, is we have to train ourselves away from finding that fleeting and false joy in the things of this world, a joy that, that that's where we find our satisfaction. I'm not saying we can't be happy and enjoy the things of the world, but our, our true joy needs to be in the Lord and in what he has done for us, and that we are actually called children of God. We are servants Of the living God. And so then our souls can be gladdened by the Lord, even in the midst of circumstances that we find difficult and troubling. And David's circumstances are quite bad. As I said, there are certainly things that would dim unsubstantial joy. Look down at verse 14. O oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. Here are arrogant, ruthless, and proud men that have risen up against them. They are a mob seeking his life, intending to end it. They don't want to just capture David. They want to end his life. And they live their lives in a way that is in so many ways diametrically opposed to David. They don't put the Lord first. They don't seek the guidance of the Lord. The last phrase, they do not set you before them. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. These insolent men will be shaken David says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David's different. He has stability, unshakable stability, even when very little in the sense of the world is going well. Folks, we all need that kind of stability. We all need that that resolution that the Lord is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Because we've all experienced times when things are not going well. When there's job loss, financial struggles, health concerns, family concerns. You turn on the news for an hour and you start feeling that. Our refuge and our joy cannot be found in circumstances. It can only be found in the Lord. I've said this before. I know Danny repeated it a couple weeks ago. Blessed are all who take refuge in the king who reigns. That's where our blessedness is. That's where our joy is as we go to the Lord for our refuge. So David prays. And he prays with some audacity, with some forwardness, with, with bluntness that might shock some of us when we think about it. But he does this because he knows who he is. He knows he's a servant of the Lord, and quite simply, he knows that God is his Lord. But I think there's a little bit more to this. You see, you can be in a relationship and not act appropriately in regard to that relationship. You know, you can be a child and never ask for help from your parent. No, I mean, what's like the first thing that kids do so often? I I do, I do. You have no idea how to do what you're saying. Ask for help. We, we, we so often do that. We, we don't li- act appropriately a lot of times. And sometimes, you know, we could be in a relationship like that, not with the Lord, but with a Lord who is an actual jerk, who doesn't care for us. So David could actually pray, not just because he's a servant and, and the Lord is his, his Lord, but because the Lord is the sovereign Lord, the God of the universe and who he is. David knows who he is. David knew the character of God. That's a a real driving reason for why he could go before the Lord. Look at verse 5. In the midst of David calling out and pleading, so he's he's in the midst of of all these calls at this prayer, and he just turns and goes, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. David can't keep the character of God out of his mind, out of the grounding for his prayers, because it drives his prayers. He can pray this, listen to me, because, Lord, you are good, and you abound in steadfast love. He's good and forgiving. He's not evil. He's not evil. He's not a tyrant. He's not one that you would avoid. His goodness actually draws you in, and he's forgiving how comforting is it that he's forgiving because even though david doesn't really mention it here he knows he's not innocent look at a par- you could look at a parallel psalm of psalm 25 where very clearly he's in a similar situation some of the language is much the same but he he talks about needing the forgiveness of the lord now, in this situation, he may be mostly innocent. It may be driven by the insolent men why he is experiencing this. But, but, but the reality is, is none of us are ever fully innocent. And he knows that we stand before the Lord only because he is a forgiving God. And that is comforting to, say, come, to hear the Lord say, come. Come, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, come, buy, and, you know, buy without money. And find rest for your souls. We desperately need a God who forgives. And here's the beauty. We have one. We have one. But it doesn't stop with his forgiveness and his goodness, but he also abounds in steadfast love. He comforts us abundantly. There's not a a rationing of his love. He doesn't go, okay, you know, I've used enough there. You've had enough, okay? Okay. Stop sucking on, you know, stop trying to drain my love dry. No, it's, it's steadfast, it's abounding, it's not intermittent, it's, it's firmly fixed, it's immovable. It's a love that's always there. And David knows this and rests in this, not only or, or really primarily from experience, but I think most importantly from the self-revelation of God. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, well, in in chapter 34, Moses is is given a glimpse of the glory of God. Really the backside glory of the Lord. And, And David surely didn't have a copy of Exodus with him as he's traveling around, but he knew it. He knew this scripture, he had committed it to memory It was a rock-solid foundation for him and his relationship with the Lord. So so listen to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, and, and hear the echoes in Psalm 86. The Lord passed before him, passed before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. David's confidence flows out of God's revelation of himself. David prays in this manner because he knows the God to whom he prays. The God to whom he is a servant. He is relying and banking on what he knows to be true of God and therefore true of him in relationship to that God. He's exercising faith by praying, by believing who God says he is. And yet there's more in this psalm. Look at verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. David highlights the uniqueness of God. There's none like him. There are no works like his. He's, he's saying, "In many, there's, there's none I can turn to. I think of uh, the, the disciples when, the, when Jesus had, had said many hard sayings. And, and many walked away and he turns to them and says, do you wish to go away too? And they say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. David, in many ways, is saying that there's no one else like you. There's no other God, false God, anything. There's none like you. Excuse me. There are no works like his. Lord's way and works are perfect and wise and holy. The reality is that God is incomparable. Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? We sang from Isaiah 43 earlier, but Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. There is no God like the Lord. He simply is the only one, the only true God. There is no competition, not any so-called gods, not money, not success, not you or me. He alone is God. We need to stop looking to other things. And then look at verse 9 again. David is pointing to reality that was yet to be realized. That is still yet to be fully realized, but it will be. All the nations shall, not might, but shall come and worship before him. This this clearly gives an allusion and speaks to the Messiah and his work. Matthew looked last week at Psalm 47. And in that psalm, there's a reversal of Psalm 2, where the the, the people gather and and they fight against the Lord. But yet in Psalm 47, it says that in in verse 9, the princes of the people now gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of earth belong to God, He is highly exalted. And then there's this parallel in the New Testament in Revelation 15:4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Those righteous acts have been revealed in Christ, in the Messiah. It's a glorious picture of what will happen, and it happens because of the work of the Messiah, not in in conquering, not in going out and just wiping out with some mighty army the enemies, but through sacrifice and love, through humility, through the cross, through the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord. Paul wrote of that in Philippians 2, 8 through 11, of all of that, of Jesus humbling himself and going to the cross, but raised and exalted, and that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We must go on in the psalm here, verses 13 and 15. God's steadfast love is again referenced. And here in the specific context of rescuing David from what would have been a sure loss of life, and then the character of the Lord is set in contrast from these men with whom he's dealing. They they are ruthless and and insolent, but God is not that. They, They are untrustworthy, but God, he is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is faithful to the core of his being. I hope that from going through this, you can see and, and really begin to see how for David and, and it should be for us, it was just logical <laughs> It was right. It was. Reflexi- it, it, it was a reflex, in many ways, for him to turn to the Lord, to turn to the Lord in prayer and to trust him. Yet I would dare to say that we're not all that good at it. Sometimes yes. Sometimes no, and sometimes yes, and then sometimes no, and then maybe no again, and then maybe no again, and then maybe yes, and we're just fickle. We have fickle hearts. And I think this is why David wrote what he wrote in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. David's not writing the psalm or praying the psalm in the abstract. He's applying the truths he knows to the fullness of life. I love what Derek Kidner, a great commentator, wrote. He said, it's a prayer about forming the right habits. Note the end in view in the middle line rather than making the right moves. Not that David belittled the importance of these. He he, he wants these right habits. David wants the Lord to teach him to mold him, to, to, to shape him so that he walks in truth. So that he walks in integrity. Folks, that we would have that same desire in our lives. That that desire would, would guide and direct us not just on Sunday morning, but on Wednesday, about 3.30 at work, when maybe you're tempted to do something that you're not supposed to do. Or in that time when you're depressed in the dark of the night, you turn on your computer. And you shouldn't be. There's so many instances that we need shaped and molded. That this would direct our hearts. It's hard. We live in a world full of distractions. Full of things which pull hard at our hearts and divide our loyalty away from the Lord. That's why the last line of verse 11 is so vital here. In some ways, I think it's the high point of the psalm. It's it's what it's been driving towards. Unite my heart to fear your name. I think the old NIV or NAS says, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Again from Kidner, he says, this is a, a penetrating climax Confessing in a single phrase the disintegrated state of man, which is shown elsewhere in Scripture in many forms from insincerity and irresolution to the tug of war which Paul describes in Romans 7.15. His concern is not with unifying his personality for its own sake. The lines meet at a point beyond himself, the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom the beginning of knowledge. He's calling us to the fear of the Lord above all else. If we fear the Lord rightly, I, I guarantee you will go to him in prayer when times are troubled, because you know who to go to. You know who not to fear. We, we need to let that rule our hearts, but I think we often, and, and at times unintentionally, we fear the wrong things. Our hearts, our affections are pulled in, in these competing directions. Some of it is life. Uh, again, it could be things like financial stability and the stress of that and our children or family and what's going on in the world, politics, troubles. It's all competing for our heart's sphere for our loyalty, for our trust, to the point where we we look to those things and actually those things being right and set exactly how we want. If we just have the right person in the right office of politics, everything will be good, right? No. If we remember that the Lord is the right person seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty, we know that everything will be right. He will bring forth justice. It may not be, we may not see it all in our lifetime, but he will bring forth justice. He will do what is right. It's all competing for our trust, for our stability, for, for, it's, it's holding out joy and hope and refuge, but unless it's the Lord, it's all false. This psalm teaches and calls us to find our, faith, our, our, our joy in the Lord, in a, in a heart that is not divided in its loyalty, in a person who's not double minded, and the only person that is, is Jesus. He's the one who was fully loyal, who was never double minded, who never wavered. We're to pursue Him wholeheartedly and to trust Him. And know that as believers, as we we looked at a while ago in Philippians, we have the mind of Christ. We are in union with our Lord. We are in that family. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And today we know that ever more clearly because of our union with the Lord, we are that family. We are with him. And that makes a huge difference. Understanding our relationship with the Lord, with, with, with how we, it changes how we react to trouble and other pulls in our lives, things that tug at us. And folks, growing in our knowledge of the character and the person of the Lord will also greatly deepen our joy and, and deepen our prayer life and push us in so many ways. At the end of the psalm, David asks for a sign of favor. He says, Show me a sign of your favor. Show me a sign of your favor. We often need that. We have that when we come together, and particularly on the first Sunday of the month when we take the Lord's Supper, and it's a sign, it's a, it's a show of his favor, of his covenant. One of my favorite verses, two verses Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And here's the sign. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's our sign of favor. That's where our hearts can be directed back to when the world is yanking at it. That will unite our hearts as we turn to our Lord and Savior. Let us turn to our Lord, our refuge, our King, the one who loves us dearly, who is our sovereign, our master. Let's be his servants and go to him. Let's pray. Father, We do thank you for all you've given us. Lord, work in our lives. Grow us in our knowledge of you. We would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To transform us, to give us strength. In the midst of all of it, as David even prays in it, give strength to your servant. Lord, give that strength as we know you, as we love you. Comfort us, encourage us, strengthen us in the midst of all of life. Lord, do that for your glory, for our good and our joy in you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.